So this morning, um, we're continuing our sermon series on a firm foundation, and we're going to be talking about when the Holy Spirit comes with fire, and uh, and the Holy Spirit is um, it's not something that is often preached, um, at least not in the Methodist Church. It's not something that we talk a lot about, um, and so my temptation this morning is to preach too much. <laughs> Because we don't talk about this subject a lot. And, and because the Holy Spirit is so vital to the believer's life, I'm, I want to preach about five messages all in one. But the main idea is that as, as believers, as Christians, the, the purpose and the power of the Holy Spirit for our lives as faithful Christians is to bring power into the believer's life. And so I want to use a sort of a, a word picture. So when we think of fire, how, do, how does wood catch fire? Um, it has to be exposed, has to be exposed to a catalyst, something that enables a reaction. A catalyst is something that enables a reaction or, or provokes a significant change or action. But it, it must be heated to a, to a combustible temperature. Okay, we're just talking scientifically. Um, and the temperature for wood is around 300 to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. So what affects the ignition of a substance? Just Again, just being practical. Um, three things, size, size of the wood. So the bigger the piece of wood is, the longer it takes to catch fire. Moisture. How much moisture is in the wood or how dry it is. And then exposure time. How long it's been exposed to the fire. So more on that in a few minutes. But as it is with wood, so it is with the human spirit. Um, Evan Roberts, who pioneered the Welsh revival between 1904 and 1905, described the months and years leading up to the moment when God ignited his soul he described it this way. He said, I, I have only to wait for the fire. I have built an altar and laid the wood in order and I have prepared the offering and I have only to wait for the fire. So waiting, waiting for the fire is an act of faith. But we're a fickle people. Some of us don't want the fire of God at all because it will cost too much. It'll damage our idols. It'll burn up our treasures. It costs too much in this life. The price is high. Listen, we live in the panhandle of Texas. We live in drought. We know about fires, don't we? We know that when they, when they catch, we dread them. And we dread them because in their wake, they leave destruction. They burn up everything in their path. And it doesn't, it doesn't discriminate. Fire doesn't say, well, I'll skip this house. Or no, I won't get that one because, well, they're prominent in the community. It doesn't... Fire is indiscriminate. Others of us are impatient and we want the fire now. We want it this moment. Our attitude is don't just stand there, do something. Our undoing will be taking matters into our own hands or banging rocks together trying to make our own fire. And so I'm using this as a metaphor. So there's some of us that don't want it at all because we're afraid of what it's gonna do. Oh my gosh, the fire burns. God 
uses fire in the Old Testament as analogies that our God, our God is a consuming fire. He doesn't say our God is like a consuming fire. He doesn't say, here's a consuming fire and I'm like that. He said, no, I am a consuming fire. And so that fire burns thing. It burns. And we tend to look at fire in the negative except, except a fire that that we build in our home in winter to stay warm, that's a good fire. Well, it's burning. In one case, you might even say it's burning this wood up and in, and in, in this, bud, this wood burning to ashes, it's producing heat that's heating the home and there's something, I like that. It keeps me, it keeps me warm. So there's something about fire that we fear, we should because it burns. There's something about fire that's good because it heats and it warms. And so we must always remember that on whatever side we fall, be it fear, stubbornness, doubt, or clear on the other side in impatience or presumption and works, God works supernaturally as it, as it pertains to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes instantaneously, as we'll look at later in the second chapter of Acts. But often, or more, more often than, than not, he works over time. But all that dampens the human spirit, sin, situations, self, they must all burn off before there's enough heat to actually catch fire. The first thing Jesus did after his resurrection was meet with his followers and deal with their doubt and their unmet expectations. And he loved them. And he appointed them to resurrection Ministry. So think about what resurrection ministry means. Resurrection ministry means death-defying ministry. A ministry that defies death. That's what they were going to have. But he also warned them in Luke 24, verse 49, not to go ahead of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised, but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with the power from heaven. In other words, don't attempt to be my witnesses in your own power, but wait for the Lord and let, let the waiting do its work of sanctification so that when the Lord's ready to send the fire, it will catch. See, many of us, our worry wards. We pray over our finances. We pray over our health. We pray over our situations. But as soon as amen is said, we pick up our fret. We pick up our worry. We take it right back into ourselves. And often it's not entirely our fault. Some of us missed fundamental teachings and instructions concerning the Holy Spirit. Some of us uh, are fearful of the Holy Spirit wrongfully believing that he only works through loud and emotional and demonstrative personalities. Regrettably, some of us have lived through dramatic church splits and divisions regarding someone's understanding of the Holy Spirit. For some of us, we've, we've bought into the false belief that the work of the Holy Spirit is something that's individualistic. It's some individualistic experience that's attached to having a certain personality trait or giftedness. And others... We try to pigeonhole the power and the work of the Holy Spirit strictly to signs and wonders and miracles. And then finally, there's, there's those of us that just flat out deny that super, 
supernatural workings occur today through the Holy Spirit. Week after week, we stacked the wood and we've added kindling, but never asked or waited for the fire to ignite it. Methodism in the 20th century added to the problem due to, to certain theological streams that worked their way into our denomination and downplayed, or worse, they outright rejected the miracles of the Bible as being something God wouldn't do. Or, or they totally did away with the virginal conception of Christ as myth adapted from other religions. Or they chose to see the feeding of the 5,000 as never actually happening, but rather it's a metaphor that teaches us how to share. Or that the very resurrection of Jesus as a metaphor for the ongoing power of Jesus' message. But the problem with that false interpretation of the Bible and Jesus is that it's neither compelling nor is it truthful. It merely formed a generation of churchgoers who had little expectation that God would actually show up in their life in any meaningful way. The Methodism that the Wesley brothers foresaw was historically a spirituality that drew on the vast variety of spiritual disciplines. And that engaging them in community in order to invite the Holy Spirit to lodge within each person as a mobile moving tabernacle. In order to rise above the messiness of human life. A fiery, dynamic, fully alive faith that transforms the very atmosphere within and around us. This is what the Wesley brothers saw. And if we're to engage in conversation concerning the Holy Spirit, perhaps this analogy of how fire catches is helpful. Think of the wood as our souls, our lives before God. And the kindling is the small daily practices that actually heat up the wood. Worship, reading the word, caring for the orphan, the widow, and the needy. Prayer, both personal and communal prayer. Group study, any spiritual discipline that helps us to grow. And the fire, that is the Holy Spirit's job. That's him. So what are we to believe concerning the fire, the Holy Spirit? Well, John 20, 19 through 22 this is shortly after Jesus' resurrection, says that that Sunday evening the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Now listen carefully to what he says because I want to explain something to you. He says, peace be with you. And he said, as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you. So anytime the Bible repeats something twice, it's not just because someone felt like that would be a really cool English thing to do, to put that in there twice, to really emphasize. There's something, really, they want you to catch this. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So receive the Holy Spirit. And in that, in, in, that, uh, in the Greek, that, that receive there is to seize or to receive or to take hold of is what it means. Peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Spoken of in Galatians 5, 22 through 24. 
And, and it, it, it's supposed to give you the picture. He says, peace be with you. And he breathes on them. You ever been camping? You go to start a fire. You put the wood up there. Now, if you're familiar with how to build a fire, you don't start with gigantic logs. Okay? You start with small things. You put the small sticks in there, and then you get some hay or some dry grass, something, paper, anything that's going to catch quickly. You put it in there, and then you, you light it, and you get that going. Once that gets going, then you have some coals. Now, once those coals are going, how many of you have ever then you go, and you breathe on those coals, and they, they glow red, and they get really red, and then as soon as you stop blowing, they go down, and then all of a sudden, whoop, this little single flame will start, and then that flame is what's going to catch the wood, but we, we breathe on it, or if you, if you use one of those billows in a fireplace to blow on the fire. Again, we live in, we live in West Texas. We know about wind and fire. To us, it becomes an enemy. We're like, we don't want the wind. Why do we not want the wind? Because it spreads fire. So Jesus breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he is fanning the flame of something that's already alive within them. Galatians 22 through 24 says, but the Holy Spirit produces the kind of fruit, this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace. And this is what he just said. Peace be with you. And then he fans the flame that's already existent over the last three years that they've been spending with him. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to the cross and crucified them there. So these are supposed to be the fruits of the Spirit. This means the ripe fruit that we've picked and are taking inside of us. We've received it. We are taking these fruits into us. These are fruits of the Spirit from having walked with Christ. But contrast that with the events in Acts 1, 4 through 5. He says, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them. Now this is again after his resurrection. He says, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Baptized in this instance, before he says receive it, now he says be baptized. Which is a, to dip repeatedly, to immerse to submerge, to be cleansed or overwhelmed by this. At first, he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Take this, like picking ripe fruit. Let me fan this thing that's already alive in you because you've been walking with me. But he says, now, this is different. I need you to wait and hang out for this. Don't get ahead of me. Because this is not you taking in the Holy Spirit inside of you, but this is the Holy Spirit overwhelming you. At first, I'm taking hold of the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit's taking hold of me. And what the Holy Spirit offer, what did the Holy Spirit offer the disciples through immersion? 
through this one that he's talking about. What did he offer through immersion that they didn't already have before? With Jesus just breathing on them. With Jesus just fanning the coals that are already existent. He's stirring the fruit that's already evident in their life. How's this one different? In Acts 1.8 it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You may already have the work of the Spirit. You may already have fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness. You may have all those things already at work in you because you've been walking with Christ. But what's different as you're immersed in the Holy Spirit? Power. Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But power for what? Power to act weird? Power to do crazy stuff? And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Power to be my witnesses. Immersion in the Holy Spirit comes as we prepare the altar of our heart. The altar of our heart. There's a reason in the Methodist church and a Catholic church and a Presbyterian church in certain churches where there's an altar and it's center. It is, it is to be the center of worship. This, is, this represents your heart. The altar represents heart. The altar is where sacrifice takes place. When we look at that in the Old Testament, the altar was where they laid the sacrifice. So notice what's up here. Where you put your money, the word of God. The baptismal waters, anointing oil. The cross itself, which represents sacrifice and fire. And so we hear a lot about orthodoxy, which is right belief. And we hear a lot about, or not as much about, but we hear about orthodoxy, which is right belief, and orthopraxy, which is right practice. But I believe Wesley taught, I don't know that he said this word, but orthocardia, having the right heart. If this is not right, belief and actions won't line up. This has to be correct first. The heart, where my money is, what I'm doing with the word of God, the fire of God, sacrifice, my baptism. These things have to be worked out first. But immersion, immersion in the Holy Spirit comes as we prepare our, uh, the altar and we stack the wood. We prepare the kindling. And the one thing we can't do, though, is we can't start the fire ourselves. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Like Elijah and the prophets of Baal, Elijah got everything ready, but the fire had to come from heaven. And I want you to consider Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 2, there's the story of Jesus at age 12 in Jerusalem for the Passover. And after this feast, his family and his friends, they leave to go home. But scripture says, when they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him. Three days later, three days, three seemed to follow Jesus around. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious leaders, listening to them and asking questions. But Jesus' response is, why'd you need to search for me? He asked, didn't you know I must be in my father's house? 
But verse 51 goes on to say of that, of that verse or that chapter, it says, then he returned to Nazareth with his parents, with them, and he was obedient to them. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. At age 12, a man by Jewish standards, Jesus does what is logical and he places himself in the temple in Jerusalem. That's his father's house. So metaphorically speaking, he's stacking wood and he's gathering kindling for the fire. Jesus is with religious teachers answering and asking questions. But does anyone really know, do you know, when his ministry really started? When does it kick off for real? Because at this point, he's trying to make it happen. Now, I'm not saying he's in sin. I'm not saying he's striving. I'm saying there's nothing wrong with that. He's passionate. He's zealous for the Lord. He's 12. Let's get it. Let's start the show. Let's go. Let's move. And his mom says, not yet. And he goes home with her. And he's obedient. When does his ministry kick off? Roughly 18 years later, 66 miles from the temple, at a small city called Canaan, at a wedding. And as far as we know, Jesus wasn't displaying his grand debate skills or his knowledge of scripture or his handling and interpretation of the Torah as he'd done at 12 in the temple. The Holy Spirit worked through Jesus first right after being baptized by John the Baptist in John chapter 1. And then by John chapter 2, Jesus is with his disciples at a wedding in a small town. And this is where the Holy Spirit struck the match. What did Jesus actually do? I want to break it down in John chapter 2. Starting in verse 3. The wine supply at the wedding is running out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. Oh, no. The same woman that shut down his ministry at 12 is now launching him into ministry at 30. And he says, dear woman, that's not our problem. And Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Well, that's interesting. My time has not yet come. So Jesus now at 30 understands the timing of the Lord, that he can't strike the match. It's in his father's hands when he kicks this thing off. It's not my time yet. Jesus tries to decline because he's waiting on the Holy Spirit's timing. It says, but his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And the Spirit had already confirmed to mom what he was soon to speak to Jesus. And standing nearby were six stone water jars used for ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And then he says, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. That's, that's so not amazing. Fill some water jars. You fill it. I'm not going to fill it. You fill it. And now go serve that. Okay. We're going to serve water. The wine's run out. Here's some water. So the servants followed his instructions. And Jesus' first miracle is turning water into a fine cabernet after the wine coolers ran out. And everybody had already had a lot to drink. Don't take my word for it. Take it from the MC at the wedding. John 2, 9. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, 
Not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you've kept the best until now. And all the wine coolers are gone. Now you're serving, you're serving the good wine. That's backwards from the way everybody else does it. This miraculous sign at Canaan and Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, Scripture says, and his disciples believed him. The moral is, it wasn't at the temple in Jerusalem with the scholars debating and discussing Scripture where the Holy Spirit first revealed himself through Jesus' life. Sure, they marveled at Jesus, but that was the approach of every other rabbi of the day, debate and discuss. That's what we're doing now. What caused Jesus' disciples to believe in him was supernatural power, which came by waiting on the Holy Spirit's timing. It's almost offensive to the Western religious mind. Water into really fine wine at a wedding party of people who've already had too much to drink. By the way, that event is just a cute magic trick unless you understand the timing of what's happening next. In verse 12, after the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. Huh, well, we've come full circle. At age 12, around the time of Passover, he's trying to kick this thing off. And at age 30, around the time of Passover, this thing gets kicked off. So there's something about timing, but there was an 18-year difference. Three years later, during the time of Passover, the fireworks of Jesus' ministry will reach their grand finale on a cross in Jerusalem at the same time the lambs are being slaughtered for Passover. One of the main liturgical elements of Passover is to drink four full cups of wine over the course of the meal. The meal is eaten remembering the Jewish exodus from slavery. And the four cups represent sanctification, deliverance, redemption, and praise. So Jesus' first audience is Jewish. Do you think there's any significance to the timing of all these events around Passover? His first miracle involved a wedding and provision of fine wine. Of his final Passover meal and the reference to his body and bread and his blood as wine and introducing himself into that liturgy. That happened during Passover. It's during Passover. It's during the giving of the cups and the eating of the bread that he reveals himself. And he uses this wine metaphor as his blood. Do you think anything less than Roman candles will go off in the heart of his disciples as the last three years of ministry and miracles and revelation comes crashing in on them and it all begins to tie together, especially after his resurrection. The Holy Spirit is crucial in revealing Christ, but we have to wait on his timing. Now bear with me just a few more minutes because Acts 2 gives us an example as his disciples as to what the Holy Spirit's seeking to accomplish. It says on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there's a sound like a windstorm. Here we go with the wind again. Back to our analogy of these fires that go through our, 
the panhandle of Texas, back to the campfire when there's coals and we're trying to get this fire started and we're, we're breathing on it. Here's the reference to wind again. Like a windstorm and it fills the house, then flames of fire appear and settled on each of them. Everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now don't tune me out. This is still the word of God, even if you're cynical towards the charismatic movement. Now guess who heard all this going on? It says, devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. They said, we hear them speaking in our own native languages, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. So I ask again, what did the Holy Spirit communicate through Jesus at the wedding in Cana? Was it not pointing to something greater than physical wine at a wedding? What did the Holy Spirit offer the disciples at Pentecost that they didn't have already? The power to communicate effectively to insiders and to outsiders and to reveal Jesus in a way that all people could hear and understand. In Acts 2, they weren't all speaking the same language. People from all around the country of Israel were coming to this place for Passover. And there were multiple languages. And what did the Spirit do? He came with power in order to communicate clearly. Not to bring chaos and confusion, but to communicate clearly. The Holy Spirit is the power necessary to communicate visually, non-visually, and audibly in order to reveal truth. But most often, Jesus spoke in word pictures called parables under the power of the Holy Spirit. And revelation came to those whom the Holy Spirit revealed it to. And it went right over the head of everyone, everyone else who just thought it was a cool or surface story. So I fully believe this about the Holy Spirit. One of the things it's going to take for us as a church, for our denomination to embrace the Holy Spirit. And again, why do we need him? Power. Was, was, was the Spirit of God falling in the upper room, was that for them so that they could have this really cool experience? And they're like, look at this. Whoa, power of God. Come on, preach and have a Holy Ghost experience. Was it about that? It wasn't about that. This happened in this place and it went outside the walls and it affected the city. And if it doesn't affect the city and it's only happening in here, that's when you're worried. But here's what I know about the Holy Spirit. Because he's the fire, we can stack the wood all day, okay? And we can gather the kindling, these spiritual disciplines, and we can read our word, and we can fast and pray and do all these things, and we can gather it, and we can gather everything together and say, you've got to ignite it. But we're going to have to embrace our inadequacy. It is a prerequisite to embrace our own inadequacy, to start a fire. 
It's prerequisite to walk in humility and dependence upon the counsel of the Holy Spirit. We must get to the point where we say, we are not enough. I am not enough. I must have the Holy Spirit. So what next? Check your woodpile. Is there anything to burn? Have you gathered any wood? Have you gathered any kindling? What are your spiritual habits? Is there anything for the Holy Spirit to ignite? I would love, I would love and I'm scared to death, but I would love for the Holy Spirit to come and rest on a room like this and fill this place with power, not for an experience so much as to go out and actually be effective. Unlike the effectiveness of when we're not gathered together in unity, we all have our own opinions We're not in one accord and nothing gets done. I'd much more have the unity and the fire and the power of God. But right now, this morning, I could ask you, if you want the Holy Spirit, please stand. And some of you would stand. Some of you would stand because you actually are really, there is something inside you that wants the power of God. Not not for your own use, but because you know I am fully inadequate. Others of you would be too scared. You're scared to death. Like, I don't know about that. I don't know. Others might stand because, well, I mean, I'm expected to. I'm in church. And even if I don't want to, I really should. But what I can guarantee you is there would be no unified opinion in this room today. And so we wait. (laughs) And so we wait. And so the Methodist church waits. We continue to wait till we can stop debating in the temple. Till we can stop putting the knife to each other's throats doctrinally. Till we can gather together, unified, and say we know that we can't talk about this God and what he's done unless you ignite this wood we've gathered. So this morning, what I would ask you to do, if you're scared or you're unsure of the Holy Spirit, I ask you this week, with as much ability as you're able, in your quiet time with the Lord, just say, look, I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about all this. I'll just be honest with you, God. I'm a little nervous. Talk to me. Seek him about the Holy Spirit. We're going to be talking about it tonight. If you want to come, please come. I want to, would love to have a discussion on the Holy Spirit tonight in the fellowship hall during our time tonight. If you're already familiar with the Holy Spirit, if you're like, I... I know I'm inadequate. I know we need this power. See, I believe individuals can walk in this. But what would happen if we're all walking in this? Put, put behind you everything you think you know. Oh, are oh, you talking about we're all speaking it? No, no, no. 
we're all unified, walking in power, so that as we testify of God, things are happening. We are communicating with a world that does not currently understand what we're talking about. That's what we need. This week, I challenge you to wrestle with God over that, wherever you're at in it. Pray and ask him to reveal those scriptures to you. Read in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 1. In all the places in the gospel where he talks about the Holy Spirit and where John talks about the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what you do. I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the Holy Spirit. I thank you that you come in power. I thank you that you are alive. I thank you for the third person of the Trinity. And I apologize for when we've not preached about you, when we have failed to mention how powerless and inadequate we are without the Holy Spirit. But our denomination, Lord, and where it stands, it's evident. We stand at the place of schism and completely breaking apart. And so, Holy Spirit, we know we need you. I pray that we continue to stack the wood and Holy Spirit, you would continue to blow and fan the flames until this thing bursts into a flaming bonfire that will draw people to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.